over the last few weeks, we've been talking about the fact that we get one chance to get it right. And we're spending this month asking the question that if we found out we only had 30 days to live, what would we do differently? What would we do with our lives with that one last chance? And the truth is, whether we've got 30 days, 30 months, or 30 years left to live or longer, that we only get this chance to make it right. And there's a line in that song that says you only get one chance to find out what you don't want to miss. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, He gave a very simple response. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 22. And today we're going to talk about the outworking of what that commandment was. We're going to ask ourselves the question, what does it look like to love completely? One of those most interesting verses in all of Scripture comes in the book of John. When Jesus is getting prepared for his final night on earth, when he is getting the disciples together in the upper room where they will have the Passover meal, where he will wash their feet, where he will tell them who he is, where he will pray for them, where he will spend a night in agony as he decides to do the Father's will in spite of the suffering and the pain that will come, when he will commit his life for sure to giving it completely for us on the cross. And it says that in that final moment, as he's thinking about all that's happening, it says, and now Jesus showed them the fullness or the completeness of his love. This morning, what we're going to talk about is what it means to love completely. Chapter 22 of the book of Matthew, verse 34 said, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the laws and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Somebody has said that you could... Take Christianity and the message of the cross and the message that Christ wants us to live. And if you could bring it down to its simplest form, it would simply be four words. That if you're asking, what does God require of us? What does God desire of us? What does God want for us in our lives? Then you could bring it down to four simple words. Love God, love people. That's it. What Jesus says, if you want to know the greatest commandment, then what you have to understand is that we must first love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we talked last week about loving the Lord with passion, with with, uh, desire, with going after Him, with all that we have. And then He says, love your neighbor as yourself. We've got to learn to love completely. This morning, what I want to do is kind of pick up on a theme that was in the book that we're reading through. That was on one of the days of this week that talked about the mountain climbing that comes in relationships. That we want to talk about what it takes to sustain relationships for the long term. Now, you can take today and what we're going to talk about, and you can apply it to your marriage. You can apply it to friendships. You can apply it to co-worker relationships. You can apply it to acquaintances. You can apply it to anything you want because the principles are all the same. 
But the idea is that we must understand that what God has called us to do in loving others completely is something that is very, very difficult. About a year and a half ago, I started reading a book called Into Thin Air. And it's the book of a group of guys that decided to climb Mount Everest. It's actually of an adventure writer that, that, writes for, uh, that was writing for Outdoor Magazine a story about climbing. And they asked him if he would write for climbing Mount Everest. And he had always talked about Mount Everest not being the most difficult peak or, or not being the kind of the jewel that every talk, everyone talked about. But he agreed to climb it. Now what happened on his trip is they made it to the summit and on the descent back a storm hit and he lost most of his climbing party on the mountain. But as he talks through the story and as you walk through the story of starting at base camp and then moving up the mountain, one of the things that always amazed me is all of the difficulties that come in mountain climbing. I don't know, maybe I was really naive, but I just envisioned these guys putting on some climbing gear and kind of going up the mountain, and that when you went up the mountain, it was just an upward kind of ascent. You just kind of went up. But he talks about that you go up, and then you have to go down, and then you go up, and you have to go down. And there gets to a point where you get to the top of the mountain, and if you get there, uh, that it's the air is so thin that you can only stay there for a certain amount of time before you have to come back down. And he talks about all of the problems that are there. And as I thought about that in relationships and how that the mountain climbing that, we, that happened in that day, that they got equipped for it and they went and it went up and down and difficult and good and bad and all of the problems that came, I realized that doing a relationship well is much like climbing a mountain. There are all kinds of mountains in relationships that have to be climbed and in the book this week, he talked about three that we'll flesh out a little bit here. First of all, he says that in any relationship, we must understand that there will be a mountain of misunderstanding. Anybody here in a, in a marital relationship or friendship ever have misunderstandings? Let me see your hands. Some of those shot up real quickly and real high, right? There are misunderstandings that happen. You say one thing, I hear something differently. That's the way it works. You say potato, I say Onion sometimes. It doesn't, you know, sometimes it's not even close. It's amazing to me as a, as a pastor, as a husband, as a father, that I will say something and the person hearing it hears something completely different than I intended to say. Now, who's right and who's wrong? You don't really know. There's just misunderstandings. And if we allow them to, those mountains of misunderstandings can begin to tear us apart. The second thing that is a problem with relationships is our me-first attitude. I want to let you in on a little secret here. Everybody in this room is selfish. Amen? Everybody in this room is selfish. There are times in my life when I get so aggravated with myself for thinking so much about myself. Anybody been there? There are just times when I, I realize, why did I say that? That was, that was all about me. Why did I even say that to them? I'm not mad at them. I'm mad at me. Why do, I, you know, why do I lash out like that? Why do I say those kind of things? Because we have this me first. And when you're in this relationship, the problem is, if you're trying to make the other person happy by satisfying yourself, that doesn't generally work. That's why relationships that, when I ask people why they got together or what started it all, and then they say, well, he made me feel good. Or she was somebody that I 
felt better about myself. Now, that should come as a byproduct, but if that's the main thing holding your relationship together, there's going to come a day when they're not going to make you feel good. And here's the last one, the mountain of mistakes. We're human. And just as everybody in here is selfish, everybody in here will make mistakes. You will say things you don't intend to say, but you say them. You will say things that you shouldn't say, but you will. You will do things that you shouldn't do, but you do. You just will. And when you look at a relationship that's going to last long term, whether that's a marriage or a friendship or a church, somebody in your Sunday school class or somebody that you're walking together, trying to live together for the Lord, that any one of these mountains by themselves can be major difficulties. But when you put them together, it becomes very, very difficult. So what we're going to talk today is about three things that you're going to need. Because in reading the book, Into Thin Air, there are certain things that you need if you're going to be a good mountain climber. And Kerry Shook in his book mentions a couple of these. We're going to flesh them out a little bit more. But you need certain things to be a good mountain climber, or in our case, relationship person. One of the first things you need is a good map. And so I want to give you a map of marriage, all right? There's nowhere to really write this down on there, but up on the screen is going to be a map. And we're going to talk about marital satisfaction, okay? I just want you to show, I'm going to have Johnny just put in the, just go ahead and start clicking through, and you'll see the lines come up, and you see lines that are going like this and like that, and not a very healthy heart-looking line right there, okay? Now, that kind of looks a little crazy, but that is marital satisfaction, Now, here's what happens generally in marriage, is that you start off at a pretty high level. We call that the honeymoon period. When I was in in a seminary, Susan and I were part of a newly and nearly married class. It was just people that were about to get married or had just gotten married and moved to seminary. Susan and I, when we first went to that class, had been married two weeks. So we were, near, we were, you know, nearly, newly married, qualified. And I remember after a few weeks, they asked us to share our story. And part of your story was how you met, what was happening, what, what, how did God bring you together, and you shared that. And then one of the questions you always had to answer was, when did you know the honeymoon was over? Anybody remember that date in your marriage? I mean, you don't have to share it right now, but you, anybody remember? Susan and I went flew from, from uh, Tennessee to Hawaii for our honeymoon. We flew back, and we had to get back in time for Susan to get to a meeting that she was going to for her new teaching job. We didn't fly back to Jackson or back to West Tennessee. We flew directly back to Dallas, had to get there. Well, we got to the airport. Well, first of all, we decided we were in Hawaii, and they offered sometimes on those Hawaiian flights they get overbooked. I never understood the concept of overbooking. Doesn't someone have a seat on a plane? And how do you book two people in one seat? But they overbooked. They gave us money to wait. So we were young and thought we have no problem making it. So we waited. We got there. We got on the way back, got home, overnight flight, get home. We've got to get Susan to this meeting. We're, we're driving. I can't get the luggage to work. Can't get it in the car. We get it in the car. We go on the way. We get a little ill on the way, not at each other physically. There was probably some illness at each other as well. She makes it to her first day of work, comes home that night, and it's suddenly you realize this thing is for real. Amen? And so the honeymoon starts out, and it's, it's generally pretty, 
it's pretty high on the expectation list. But then there comes something called um, marriage expectations that begin to get doused. Well, I sure thought when we got married, he would do this. Well, I sure thought when we got married, she would be like this. Here's the thing that always interests me is people think that once they say, I do, they will suddenly change. And sometimes they do change, but it's for the worse, not for the better. Amen? Some of you are afraid to say amen on that one. But it starts to go down. Now, there is a point when if you make it through, then you begin to rise a little bit, and you level off for a little bit, and then there is the great valley or the great plunge. But here's what's interesting, and we're going to put some dates up here for a minute for you to understand this. Notice what happens if you make it through all of that time. It goes up higher than the honeymoon, and it levels off. All right, let me show you when these times are. You see that first little dip? That's when you have kids in preschool. All right? Here's what happens. You suddenly have preschoolers, and you are physically exhausted. You're changing diapers. You're, you're, you're cleaning up this. You're cleaning up that. You're putting on clothes here. You're getting them ready. You're getting them in seats. You're getting all this stuff taken care of, and suddenly you're physically exhausted, and you don't have time to put into the relationship like you ought to. But at some point, your kids become a little more self-sufficient. And they can do things on their own, and your time frees up, and you're not having to tell them to do this and to do that, and they get to where they mind a little bit better. And so in elementary school, you kind of plateau up there at the good. Anybody have any idea what that Great Valley is? Teenagers. There it is. You all are to blame. Here's the thing. At the teenage stage, it's not physical exhaustion. It's mental and emotional exhaustion. Amen? Amen? You're worried all the time. You're thinking all the time. They're, they're, you don't know what's going on. This, this child that you have reared is suddenly becoming a man or a woman, and you're trying to figure it out. And you don't know what's happening. And you wake it through those years. If you do, if you successfully navigate those years, guess what? That line that starts to go up, that's when the teenagers leave the house. Amen? I got a couple of those. And if you can wait until they leave the house, parents, then your satisfaction in marriage, if you make it through all that well, goes higher than it has ever been. You know what I noticed about my parents? My mom and dad never went to Florida in their life. We didn't go family vacations to Florida. We went to Branson before Branson was cool, all right? We went to Nashville sometimes. That's not a big trip from Dyersburg, all right, for vacation. I know the staycation thing's in vogue now. Back then, we just that's where we went. We went to Cardinal baseball games. Love Cardinals baseball. We drive up for two days and come back. When I graduated and I went to school, and I'd been in school about two years, my mom calls me and says, hey, Dad and I are going to take a week and a half and go to Florida. I said, what? What are you going to do? We're not going to be there. You know, I mean, you can't go to restaurants. You can't go have fun. I mean, we're not going to be there. And you know, every year since I have left the house, those two have gone on a vacation most of the time to the beach, and now they're up to two a year. Here's why this is important. If you look at most research, most divorces 
happen in the bottom of those trenches. Either right as you're entering that preschool year, four, five years, six, seven years into a marriage, or about ten years later when you're in that teenage trench. And part of the reason is when you go into marriage, you think it's going to be a straight line. Or if anything, it ought to increase a little bit. But understanding that there will come those dips and those valleys, understanding the map helps you to understand that you have to work at it to keep it going. And that if you can just make it through these certain times, then when you get to the other side, you will see a fulfilling relationship. Now, when it comes to other relationships, co-workers, when it comes to friendships, there will be natural dips and valleys. And it's important to understand that God has created us to understand there are things that we must hold on to, that we must secure ourselves with, that we must live with if we are going to see Him glorified and see what God is going to do in our lives. Remember, in Matthew chapter 22, it says, But the most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's the first and the greatest. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let's look at three things, tools that you need. These are tools that are mentioned. A couple of them are mentioned. And then the third one is something that that is kind of alluded to in the book. But three things that you've got to have if you're going to live a life that glorifies God. First of all, you must... Hold on to the rope of acceptance. You must hold on to the rope of acceptance. I mentioned earlier that one of the things that people say to me sometimes is that we got married and then so-and-so changed. Or I thought when we got married that we would change. The truth is that most of us put on a good face while we're dating and then when we marry, we become who we really are. And so what we have to understand is that there are just certain aspects of acceptance that we must hold on to, that we must live with, that we must say that I fully accept who you are. One of the things that happens in relationships often is that opposites attract. Amen? Man, there are just things that are opposite, and I think that's a biblical concept. Because in the, New, in the uh, Old Testament, when God creates man and he takes the rib out of Adam and he creates woman, he says, this will be your helpmate or your complement. This will be the person that will fill in the gaps that you don't have. I know that as a parent, Susan and I have different styles and sometimes we're different people. We have different passions. We have different uh, approaches to life. We love each other dearly, but there are just differences. And what I can see when we're parenting is in areas where I need to be firmer, she is firmer. In areas that I need to be softer, she is softer. And we complement each other. So it's okay that you have opposites of each other. What is not okay is when you think their opposite is wrong. Because it's easy sometimes when you see a fault in your partner to think immediately because they're different, they're wrong. One of the greatest things that can happen in any relationship, whether you're, a, whether you're uh, living your life trying to uh, make a marriage work or whether you're in a friendship or whether you're in a co- you know, you're trying to make any relationship work, is just to accept people as they are. Now, that doesn't mean we don't pray for people. That doesn't mean we don't love on people. That doesn't mean that we hope that there is some change there. But what you have to understand is that it is not your personal job to change everything about the person 
in which you're in a relationship with. It's not your job. One of the things that we have to understand is that we need to begin to cherish each other. We need to begin to look at the differences. Instead of criticizing, we must cherish. Instead of changing the other person, we must cherish them. One of the things that I know happens in relationships sometimes is you just forget how God brought you together and what you're thankful for about the other person. In this week's reading, he talked about the story of the lepers that that went to ten lepers that Jesus healed. On the way to the priest, they look down and they're healed and they go to make sure the priest approves them. And only one went back and said, thank you to Jesus for making me whole. Only one went back and showed gratitude. And part of the difficulty with the rope of acceptance and holding on to that is that so many times we just look at the bad features of our mates, of our friendships, of our co-workers, and never focus on the good. What I want you to do right now and think about is this. I want you to think of two or three things, just right now, two or three things. If you're in a relationship, as far if you're married, I want you to think of two or three things that you are grateful to God about your partner, about your spouse. If you're, if you're not married and you're dating seriously, I want you to think of two or three things that you are grateful to God about the person with whom you're in a relationship. If you're not married or you're a, you don't have a spouse and you're not in a, a relationship like that, I want you to think about some friends in your life and think of two or three things that you are very thankful for to God that they have. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to write those down right now. Just briefly. Find them somewhere. Write them down. Two or three things that you're very thankful for. Now, if you're in a relationship, you've been in long term, you ought to be able to think of a lot of ways, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But I want you to write two or three things down, okay? You got it? Then take long, hopefully. This is what I want you to do. I want you to share that with somebody around you, okay? Now, here's the, here's the rules. You ready? It cannot be that person. Okay? We'll get to that in a minute, all right? So it cannot be that person. Most of you are sitting next to that person that you wrote that about. I want you to find somebody just for the next few seconds. I want you to tell them, share back and forth two or three things about that person. Tell them who the person is, first of all, okay? And tell them two or three things that you're thankful to God about. All right, this is permission to talk in church. Go. All right, that's enough. Everybody back this way. Here's what I want you to do this afternoon, this week. I'll give you homework, all right? Paul Simon once wrote a song called 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover, right? I don't want you to do that. I want you to come up with as many things as you can that you're grateful about your mate or your spouse and write them down somewhere. And then sometime this week, I want you to share that with them. All right? I want you to write it down. If you're in a a great friendship, I want you to write down things that you're grateful for. All right? Now, let me just tell you, if you go after your spouse has heard this sermon and you only list two things, that is not a good list. All right? You need to list things that you're grateful about your spouse, grateful about your friend, and then I want you to share them. Part of acceptance is gratitude for what is given them. 
part of acceptance is just accepting that there are differences. I saw this week some list of things that guys wished women understood about them. I'm not going to read them all because it would get me in a whole lot of trouble. This is just going to get me in a, a lot of trouble. All right. First of all, ladies, if something we said can be interpreted two ways, and one of those ways make you sad or angry, we meant the other one. All right? Here's another. Come to us with a problem only if you won't help solving it, because that's what we do. That didn't get much laughter there. Christopher Columbus didn't need directions, and neither do we. Here's where the trouble begins. If it itches, it will be scratched. We're not mind readers, and we never will be. And here's the last one. Simple things that we really wish you would understand. If we ask what is wrong and you say nothing, we will act like nothing is wrong. All right? Ladies, I saw this this week. It's a guy's dictionary. What to understand when your man says something. When a man says you wouldn't understand, it's just a guy thing. What he really means is there's absolutely no rational thought pattern associated with it. When a man says, honey, why don't you take a break? What he really means is, could you please stop the vacuum cleaner? I can't hear the game. And when a man says, I can't find it, what he really means is, it didn't fall into my outstretched hands, and therefore, I am completely clueless as to where it is. Amen. That's the first strong female amen I've gotten in a long time. We're different, right? We just are. And that doesn't mean, let me just say this, guys and ladies, that doesn't mean that we don't try to change who we are, but it means we stop trying to change who they are. As a follower of Jesus, you should never be satisfied with just saying, that's just how I am. You always ought to seek to grow. But it means that I don't try to determine how my spouse ought to grow. That's God's job. Now, will He use each other? Will He use us in that relationship to sharpen and to build? Absolutely. But it's not my job to determine the plan. Just to live as God's called me to live. So the first thing that we do, when you're climbing a mountain, they, they put a rope so that you've got a rope to hold on to. They, they strap you with each other. You, you have a rope that you have to constantly hold if you're going to get traction to go up. But you also have to have traction in your feet. You also have to have the ability to stay where you are. And after you hold on to the rope of acceptance, you must always gain traction with loving actions. You must gain traction with loving actions. The truth is, when Jesus talks about love here in Matthew chapter 22, what He's saying here is not an ooey-gooey kind of love. He's not mentioning here that what you have is an ooey-gooey love where people just kind of say, I love you, I love you. What he means is that you show it. Philippians 2.4 says that you look out for one another's interest, not just for your own. And the first step in understanding how to gain traction with loving actions is to just be considerate. It's consideration. Be considerate when you're thinking of your partner. I mentioned earlier that one of those big mountains to climb is the me first mountain. And what you've got to do is be considerate about your partner and ask, 
What would they feel like if this happened? How would she respond? How would he act if he knew this was going on? How can I help them? What need can I feel? What's something I can do for them right now in order for them to be able to live their life better? It's consideration. On top of that, there has to be, in any marriage, in any relationship, cooperation. You have to work together. You have to be willing to to make sure that the team is greater than the sum of its parts, that somehow the two of you complementing one another, that you're cooperating with one another, and that you're moving forward. One of the commitments that Susan and I have made in our marriage and that we feel is a godly commitment is that we don't ever contradict each other with the kids. If I go in there and I tell Eli that, um, that he's got to do something and if he doesn't do it, there'll be this punishment, Susan doesn't go in behind me and say, oh no, don't listen to your daddy. That we work together, that we are a team, and that for Eli and for Luke to see that we are always working together as a team. And then the third C is you've got to have commitment. You've got to have commitment. Another thing that Susan and I have said that is in our relationship, the D word does not apply. We don't ever use the word divorce in our relationship because it's not an option. Watching the video of this week's uh, Sunday school lesson, some of you were able to watch that in Sunday school, but the video with Carrie, uh, Carrie and Chris, I thought it was interesting that he said that sometimes they just look at each other and say, you're stuck with me. And that many times in life that even though it's difficult and it's problematic and the feelings aren't there at that moment, that they still look at each other and they just simply say, you're stuck with me. It's commitment. I read this week a story about a man that I already admire, that I admire even more now. Basketball coach John Wooden. He's in his 90s. But I would dare say that there have been very few, if any, finer people in American sports than John Wooden. He won 10 NCAA basketball championships at UCLA, the last in 1975. Nobody's even come close to that. He won 88 straight games. Nobody's come within 42 cents. There's never been another coach like Wooden, loyal to one woman, one school, one way, walking around campus in sensible shoes with old school morals. He used to say, discipline yourself and others won't need to. He used to tell his players to never lie, cheat, steal, and earn the right when you can to be proud and confident. In fact, if you played for him, you played by his rules. The story is told of Bill Walton, one of his most famous and best players coming in and and Uh, Coach Wooden had a rule that if you played for him, you didn't have facial hair and you didn't have long hair. And one year after summer, uh, Bill Walton walked into Coach Wooden's office and he said, Coach, how are you doing? He said, Bill, I noticed you've grown a beard and grown your hair out. He said, yes, Coach, I have. He says, it's my right to do that and I'm going to do that. He says, I'm glad you feel so strongly about that, Bill. We will miss you on the team this year. Bill went out. He's All-American, best player in the country cut his hair, shaved his face. In fact, Bill, who is not necessarily a follower of Christ, and Coach Wooden is, so admires the man that he still calls him once a week. Coach Wooden, this is what I read this week that I did not know. 
is on the 21st day of the month, just two days from now, he will sit down and he will write a letter out to his wife. And he will talk about how much he loves her. He talks about how much he misses her. He talks about how closely he guards the hope that he will see her again. He writes that letter out. He folds it over. He slides it into a little envelope. He walks into his bedroom and he puts it on the stack of love letters sitting on the pillow where she once slept. That stack keeps getting higher and higher. Because by all calculations, he has written somewhere around 200 of those letters. It's been about 17 years since the day Nellie, his beloved wife of 53 years, died. And in her memory, he sleeps only on his side of the bed, only on his pillow, only on top of the sheets, never between them. And he keeps those letters there that he writes to her all the time. That is commitment. You're going to make something work. You can't just do it haphazardly. I mentioned the mountain climbers of Mount Everest, and in the book he talks about the preparation they went into. It's not just a, here we go, here's a small little thing, I'm ready to go climb Mount Everest. It's a commitment. One of the problems we have relationships in this country is people have no idea what they're getting into. They don't understand the commitment it takes. They don't understand the tools it takes. They don't understand the the difficulty that will be there. And so when problems come, they say, I give up, I'm done. I've literally seen marriage ceremonies that says, as long as our love shall last. I'm going to tell you this. If you're talking about ooey-gooey feelings love, then when that first decline hits, you're done. But you've got to learn to commit. And not just in words, you commit through action. Let me recommend something to you. It's a book. Some of you saw Fireproof the movie. The book that came out of that movie is a book called The Love Dare. It's a 40-day experiment about loving your spouse. And The Love Dare is out. I don't get any money if you go buy it. Maybe I ought to talk to them about that. I don't get any money. The Love Dare is a book. It's published by Holman... Uh, Bob, or Holman um, publishers and it's a book that if you watch the movie it's a book that came out of the desire for people to see that put into action and it's 40 days of doing acts small acts big acts to show your spouse that you care now you're supposed to kind of do that in secret and i'm kind of ruining that because i'm telling you all it's a good idea and you start doing these things your spouse is going to go you're doing that love dare thing aren't you that's okay Because what you'll see in your relationship as you begin to accept each other and as you begin to walk with simple steps, what you'll find is that your marriage, your relationship, your friendship will be much better. Here's the last tool you need. You must also remain tethered by forgiveness. You see, whenever you climb a mountain, there's that rope and there are those shoes, but they also put into practice this idea that if something fails, that you're still held on to everybody else. That if something goes wrong, that there's something that keeps you together. There's a tether. There's something that keeps you from falling off by yourself. And in a relationship, forgiveness has to be that tether. What love really means is that we are willing to say that even when we make those mistakes, even when we make those mistakes, those giant mistakes, those small mistakes, that when our spouse makes them, that we will offer forgiveness, sometimes even 
before they ask. I, uh, when I do premarital counseling, I use this tool that was developed by a guy in Seattle, Washington. And what he says about the tool is that he uses the tool because he's discovered some principles that help marriages. And what he does in his counseling is he puts two people in a room and he gives them a topic to resolve, a conflict to resolve. And he says that he can predict with 90% accuracy, and they have tested him on this, watching a couple after 30 minutes whether they will stay together or not. And he says this is how he knows. It's not whether they don't fight or they do fight. He says, in fact, I would rather they have some conflict. He said the reality is it's not whether they do or they don't. It's how they handle it once they get in the midst of it. And so he talks about on the other side of that, when you come out of any kind of conflict, that if you want that marriage to really last, what you have to do is you have to have a forgiving spirit. Because no matter how you fight in there, there are going to be ramifications from it afterward. And I just want to tell you that if you're out there and you've married somebody, you did not marry a perfect person. Amen? Amen? And that reason is because there are none. And so, in fact, your spouse did not marry a perfect person. Amen? And if there are mistakes that are going to be made, we're going to make them. I make them every day, all the time. I wish I didn't. I have enough of a perfectionist streak in me that I wish I didn't make mistakes, but I do. And what we have to understand is that we must be willing to forgive. If you have 30 days left to live, let me tell you what I know would be part of your last 30 days. And that is you want to want to see, be around, talk to, and love on the people that are important in your life. Without a shadow of a doubt, with as many people as I've been around that have been close to death, the one thing that they want is the people that they love surrounding them. The people that they care about around them. You know, I've talked about Susan's mom's death recently and some lessons that we learned out of that. And one of the things that I will remember is the last time that I really spoke to her, we talked about the week she had had before. And she had been very, very sick for a long time. She had been nauseous for, for a couple of years, almost every day. And in the last week, before her last week, she got to a point where she had no nausea for a week. None. And so the word had gotten out at Inglewood and at other places in Jackson that they didn't need any visitors. And the truth was there were days where they didn't. But suddenly they said, we need some people to come by and see her. This is a great time. She doesn't feel any nausea. Now, we didn't know how closely her death would come. And so that week there was literally like a, a line coming of people that were coming to see her, saying hello, people that had been important to her, people that she loved, family, church family, friends. In the last conversation we ever had, I was sitting at her bedside, and she told me she loved me and was proud of me and glad that I was her daughter's husband and her grandchildren's dad. And then she said, and Lyle, I'm so thankful God gave me this week because it has been a great week. And you know what? She was in bed all that week. Wasn't anything different about that week except the people she loved were around her. Now here's my thing. As I think about that, and as I think about my own life, I think, I don't want to wait till that moment 
to get to the point where I'm enjoying. And she didn't. She lived her life full with people around her all the time. But I don't want to get to that moment and then realize, "Uh uh-oh, I've missed it. So I want to spend as much time as I can around the people that I love, around the people that I care about. And I want to love them completely. Let me ask, are you willing to do that?